Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. In a moment, I'll be having a conversation with uh, the former Cabinet Secretary, uh, Robin Butler, now Lord Butler, um, because I thought it would be interesting to hear about that role uh, from someone who uh, performed it, so to speak, uh, under three prime ministers of contrasting personality. Lord Butler was cabinet secretary under Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair. So he saw at first hand all the epic dramas whirling around them. And I thought it would be interesting to hear from him because... Simon Case, the current Cabinet Secretary, is in the news one way or another most days. Questions being posed of him, fairly or unfairly, did he warn Rishi Sunak about Raab? Did he tell Rishi Sunak about X, Y and Z? Did he warn Johnson about all the um, uh, many acts of apparent misconduct that went on during that Johnson regime? Quite often his name comes up. So what is that role? How much influence does it have over a prime minister? How close do you get to a prime minister? Uh, Robin Butler sheds much light. And indeed, he worked very closely with um, prime ministers before Margaret Thatcher. His first prime minister he worked closely with was Ted Heath. Um, So anyway, we're going to hear from him on uh, the current situation and uh, the context to the current situation. Before that, uh, just a a brief uh, few comments on Nicola Sturgeon. Maybe I'll do more uh, next week. But um, her decision to go, obviously one made relatively recently, uh, will have consequences. Uh, because one of the issues in politics at any time is the quality of a leader. And there is no doubt that one of the key factors in the rise of the SNP uh, was the fact that it was extremely lucky to have had two highly talented leaders. Uh, Alex Salmon was close to being a political genius in navigating the rise of the SNP, of then becoming first minister in uh, a hung Scottish parliament and working out how to prevail uh, without having an overall majority, but then, of course, securing the voting system was designed to make this highly improbable. 
Nicola Sturgeon took over after the referendum and has been uh, as formidable and impressive. To lose a leader of such weightiness, in many ways much the most articulate and talented leader in the UK uh, at the moment, um, is is going to have big consequences. Um, however, there are always wider factors uh, in the rise of a party or a political force. And of course, some of those may remain in place. If not, there will be other consequences. One of the great drivers of uh, the in the rise of the SNP uh, was the tendency of England under any circumstance to vote for a Conservative government far at odds with um, the prevailing mood in Scotland. Boris Johnson was a key driver in sustaining SNP support and a- another significant moment, highly significant moment, actually had nothing to do with Nicola Sturgeon, even though it coincided with her taking over the leadership. Very big moment in the the rise of the SNP under her uh, took place the morning after the referendum uh, on Scottish independence, where David Cameron appeared uh, first thing in the morning to announce he was um, changing the rules about how MPs voted at Westminster, how MPs from Scotland specifically voted uh, in Westminster. And there was, I was in Scotland at the time, there was uproar. And um, in response to that Cameron statement, first thing, which looked as if it had been a fix, wait for the polling stations to close, get the result, and then change the rules. Cameron didn't have to do it. It was another shallow, ill-thought-through move to appease some in his party, the the sort of, in effect, English nationalist wing almost. And even before... Nicola Sturgeon had uttered a word as the new leader of her party. There were huge uh, increases in the party membership in the days that followed that Cameron statement. So a lot of the things happening at Westminster influence uh, the fate of the SNP. So as important a question as uh, what happens post Nicola Sturgeon, is whether, if it looks like there will be a Labour government next time, that changes the dynamics in Scotland, whether Keir Starmer is a Westminster-based leader who can excite those who have been uh, with the SNP and who have regarded independence as their way of escaping seemingly eternal Conservative rule at Westminster, uh, whether this um, forbidding, cautious leader following a version of the Blairite rulebook can excite and personify the kind of change that will drive people away from the SNP is, I think, as big a question as who the SNP elects next and whether anyone can... um, be uh, remotely as potent as Nicola Sturgeon has been and, and, and Alex Salmon was before. And there is uh, inevitably a third issue, 
and and one that uh, must have been a factor in a leader's many calculations when they suddenly and unexpectedly resign. And by the way, the most fundamental of all is leadership is really, really tough. The dilemmas leaders face are almost impossible to resolve. I remember Tony Blair saying to me very early on when he was prime minister in um, in the, it must have been the, I think it was the summer or early autumn of 97. He was about 40 points ahead in the polls, had just won this landslide. And he said, every decision that comes to him basically can be reduced to, do I cut my throat or slip my wrist? Or is it the other way around? Slip my throat, cut my wrist. In other words, there are no easy routes. And Nicola Sturgeon has been navigating her party around all kinds of complex issues in Scotland, but above all has been trying to find a route towards independence. And this, in a way, is the other factor in all of this, whoever gets it, and might have been a factor if Nicola Sturgeon, for all her formidable leadership skills, might never have resolved. What is the route towards independence? I think she had become unsure of her own judgment on this. They lost the legal case, predictably, frankly, about the right of the Scottish Parliament to uh, decide to uh, uh, legitimise independence irrespective of Westminster. And she had said the next UK-wide general election in Scotland would be seen as a referendum on independence. No election should be a single issue uh, election and isn't. And it would have been very hard for her to claim that it was and might actually have undermined SNP support as if they were trying to avoid reflecting on other issues in Scotland, such as the state of public services. But if not that route, what route? Um, There is this debate about whether the next election to the Scottish Parliament should be seen as a referendum. But the other parties won't see it as such, and uh, nor will Westminster. And if Keir Starmer wins, um, I think it highly unlikely uh, that he will uh, grant a referendum. Uh, And if he were to do so, it would be um, on the assumption, perhaps a risky one, Uh, that independence would be defeated and defeated for a second time. So there are sort of fundamental challenges. But I think a lot of the um, uh, analysis, certainly uh, from the London-based media, has been uh, far too harsh on uh, Nicola Sturgeon. The the route is just very hard. A lot of people have said, oh, well, she didn't achieve her her overriding purpose, and so that's it. Um, To kind of solidify the uh, strength of the SNP in the aftermath of, let's remember, a referendum defeat. Uh, and although it was close, it was a de- the, the gap was wider than that Brexit referendum uh, um, uh, a few years later. And so uh, it is just tough. What is their route through? And you speak to people, and and of course they rightly point out that younger people want it uh, by quite substantial majorities, independence. There will be consequences. When a leader of that talent goes, there are consequences. Uh, And she's going at a crucial junction uh, with all of this, which is why clearly it was sudden and recent. 
just weeks before an SNP conference, who was which was going to decide on uh, whether the next general election should be seen by them as a referendum on independence. And at her instigation, this was her kind of big policy announcement at the time. Uh, so no time for more reflections now, but I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you about it. I know I'm going to hear from uh, some of you. So more perhaps next week and more perhaps next week on uh, uh, Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn. Who knows? Who knows where we'll be by then? But uh, if it's okay with all of you, I'd now like to um, uh, return to the conversation with Lord Butler, um, because, as I say, let's not forget that uh, amidst all the dramas, and by the way, isn't it interesting, during these Westminster recesses, you know, when many people go on holiday, you know, political journalists stuff, there are always dramas. The parliamentary timetable is often quite peripheral to political dramas, um, but somehow... Uh, when there isn't a parliament, people kind of go away and there are always kind of many twists and turns. But the twists and turns within the Sunak government uh, and the Johnson government and indeed the Trust government, uh, Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, got involved there. Should he have allowed Trust to sack the permanent secretary of the Treasury? Should he have intervened on this this and this so what is this role of cabinet secretary um why has it become so newsworthy now what was it like under these other formidable characters uh thatcher blair major so over to robin butler to reflect on uh his career and the light it shines on the role of what is the head of the civil service, the top post behind the scenes. We don't often get there behind the scenes, but of course, it's one of the things that we in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative seek to do. So we get behind the scenes and we get context, two of our our favourite uh, pursuits. Uh, so here is conversation with Lord Butler. Lord Butler, thank you so much indeed for joining us. We're speaking at a time when the current Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, seems to be reported in the newspapers every day, whether he should have done X, whether he could have done Y, and so on. And it raises a sort of basic question about the role of the Cabinet Secretary. Uh, for all of us, it's more of a behind-the-scenes role. We don't see as much of all of you as we do the Prime Ministers who you work for. So I wonder, from your long experience, whether you can sort of summarise the role of this vital, pivotal figure that we read a lot about but don't hear from very often. Well, um, Simon Case, for whom I developed a high regard personally, I'm sure he doesn't welcome uh, being in the news as uh, much as he is. And uh, I think it's, you know, the circumstances uh, which we can discuss have brought that about. Um, but if you, we think of the role of the Cabinet Secretary, of course, it's combined with being head of the civil service. And so I suppose you'd describe the role of the Cabinet Secretary as um, keeping the government machine going in as good order as can be managed. Robert Armstrong had a very good description of it. Uh, Who was a cabinet secretary. You succeeded Robert Armstrong. Didn't you? Exactly. Yeah. He yeah. was my mentor, really. Yeah. And um, he described it as being the chief engineer uh, 
in the ship of state. So there are the politicians on the bridge, uh, steering, turning the boat, and it's the cabinet secretary's job to make sure that that then connects up with the engines and the ship goes as far as possible in the direction that the politicians want it to go. Now, you were cabinet secretary for three prime ministers, very different personalities, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, and Tony Blair. You were also, uh, your list of experience of prime ministers extends to five, isn't it? Because you were also principal private secretary, um, and that spans five prime ministers in total. So, so what's the difference between those two roles before we look at more about the role of the cabinet secretary? Well, the private secretary is the prime minister's person. Right. So there you are inside uh, number 10. Your loyalty is wholly to the prime minister. Uh, and then I discovered when I became cabinet secretary that the role is different because you're responsible to the cabinet as a whole. And this is symbolised by the fact that there is a locked door between the Cabinet Office and Number 10. Uh, And I think that is uh, symbolic. Um, And uh, I was given a key so that I could go through it. I could go into Number 10 very freely. But I was conscious of the fact that I wasn't working exclusively for the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, of course, is the Chair of the Cabinet and the Secretary of the Cabinet is therefore responsible for uh, to, to the Prime Minister for the running of the Cabinet. But you are also responsible for to the Cabinet as a whole. So that's interesting. Did you see more of a Prime Minister when you were their private secretary, sort of exclusively working for them, rather than, as you say, your head of civil service, and representing the whole Cabinet? Um, in, 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 in that more, even more senior role. So you saw more of those prime ministers than the three you worked with as cabinet secretary. Oh, yes, know. much more. Right. Well, right. because you're in the house, uh, and the prime minister is living there, um, things can happen at any hour of the day or night or, um, over the weekends. Uh, I had a bedroom allocated to me in number 10 while I was, uh, private secretary. I never used it because actually I preferred to get home whatever hour of the night it was. But um, you're you're seeing the Prime Minister in all sorts of informal circumstances. Uh, As Cabinet Secretary, I really only went into Number 10 in business hours. Now, business hours could be pretty long, but it wasn't the same sort of intimate relationship as being private secretary was. And is that your, would you assume that's the case nowadays with Simon Casey would be uh, less engaged with the prime minister or the prime ministers he has worked with um, than the private secretary? Well, yes, I, I I think that is the case. Right. I don't know because, of course, uh, I'm not there and uh, times have changed. And times have changed because I think uh, the political staff in Number 10 have got a bigger role than they had uh, in my day, both as private secretary and cabinet secretary. We were very close, the political staff and the civil servants, uh, but um, it was really the principal private secretary in Number 10 who ran the place. Now I think it is the more likely to be the chief of staff who is politically appointed. Uh, and so I think there has been a difference. And um, so I think, as it were, the 
the, the civil service principal private secretary isn't quite so much the top dog um, as he was in my day. So as cabinet secretary, what were the kind of areas where you would advise, in inverted commas, the prime minister? I mean, is it about the the rules, the constraints that you need to alert them to? Do you have policy discussions in terms of the workability of a policy? The poll tax just plucked something out of the air. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher from the late 80s. How wide is that remit in terms of your engagement with the prime ministers? Well, the principal remit is managing the business. And so the not only the meetings of the cabinet, but the meetings of the cabinet committee, committees uh, that week, some of which the prime minister chairs and some of which uh, other senior ministers chair. And I would have a weekly meeting um, with the other members of the cabinet office staff, the other secretaries. We would map out a um, scheme of uh, committee uh, uh, and cabinet meetings. I would then have a meeting with the prime minister at which we would discuss that. And inevitably, when you're discussing the scheduling of the meetings and the subjects, you get onto the subjects and then you talk about the subjects uh, a bit. And so you'd be discussing with the prime minister, prime minister might say, well, what does what, what does the Chancellor of the Exchequer think about this? What's the what's the position of the Foreign Secretary going to be? So you be so the management of business would also meld into the discussion of policy, to the point where you almost can influence policy development in the mind of a Prime Minister. Yes, except yes, you can, but. Um, I, 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 and I think probably a lot of uh, civil servants, um, I was uh, a pragmatist rather than an ideologue. On the whole, I tried not to uh, influence the uh, Prime Minister. If Prime Minister asked my opinion, I, I'd offer it. But I didn't want to impinge on the role of the Secretaries of State. You know, they were the ministers responsible. And if you start getting in the way between the Prime Ministers and Secretaries of State, you're asking for trouble. Now, you uh, worked with three Prime Ministers, very different personalities, I've already said. I can imagine, let's take Margaret Thatcher first. Was she receptive to your advice, even if at times it might have been unwelcome advice? Presumably, you have to be candid. That's part of your responsibility. Um, And I imagine some could take that better than others. What about her? Well, I worked with Margaret Thatcher in two phases, and they were very different. When I was principal private secretary, she was already established as prime minister. Um, she had had the Falklands War, uh, and but uh, we then faced the miners' strike and so on. Um, when I became cabinet secretary, I was pri- principal private secretary from 82 to 85, and then I went back to the treasury for three years, and then I came back as cabinet secretary. She had changed. Um, She was, um, the way I put it, I think she was more tired, as you might expect. Um, When I was principal private secretary, we would sit up long into the night 
um, having arguments and uh, particularly when speeches were being prepared. When I became cabinet secretary, unless there was a crisis, uh, she didn't want to do that. And she was very much more reliant on her staff, particularly on Charles Pohl, who was the Foreign Affairs Private Secretary, and Bernard Ingham, who uh, was the Press Secretary. And um, so she, she was standing back. And in the end, I think, you know, that was quite instrumental in her downfall. She didn't... I, I always said of her that she could listen while she talked and you could say, say things to her. She'd never give way and concede a point <laughs> while you were talking to her. But next time the subject came up, you often found that her position had slightly changed. Oh, right. So she was receptive in that sense. She was Even receptive. if you didn't get the impression she was being <laughs> exactly. so at the time. Um, Tony Blair was a very different character. Um, and I imagine on one level, easier to engage with. But his number 10 was more politicised, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, and that presumably created all kinds of different tensions. Yes. Um, when Tony Blair uh, came in in 1997, of course, Labour hadn't been in power for 18 years. Tony Blair had never been a member of the Cabinet. I think there was only one person, Jack Cunningham, who'd been a, a, a minister before, and so they were all very new and they were feeling their way, including Tony Blair. And um, Tony Blair, he at first, and perhaps all prime ministers when they first come in uh, from having been in opposition, did almost act as if he was a member of the opposition. And of course, the, the Labour Party then was split between New Labour and Old Labour. And within the cabinet, New Labour was almost a sort of revolutionary cell. It was certainly in a minority of the uh, of the cabinet. And so Tony Blair didn't welcome, uh, certainly in my nine months while I was cabinet secretary under him, general discussions about policy. He liked to fix the policy with um, uh, John Prescott, uh, Gordon Brown, Peter Mandelson, before they got into the cabinet. And then it was a business of selling the things they had decided to uh, to the cabinet. So it was really very different. At the moment, um, it seems from these daily reports that I referred to at the beginning, um, that one of the issues around uh, the current cabinet secretary, Simon Case, is... Uh, uh, these moments of re cabinet reshuffles, whether he should have advised Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak about, I don't know, the tax affairs of um, uh, Zahawi, the uh, situation with Dominic Raab, and whether he did or not, etc. Now, presumably you don't know, I don't know what advice was given. But is that the kind of thing a cabinet secretary should do, is expected to do? Well, it very much depends, I think, on the personal relationship. And as you say, I, I don't really know what it is. I certainly sat in on most reshuffles while they were going on. And the Prime Minister's got various uh, sources of advice. Um, a very important source of advice, obviously, are the whips. Uh, you know, they know a great deal about the members of the party. Um, and I can certainly remember, you know, when 
when I took part in those discussions, you know, I was able to contribute things that I happened to know. Um, but um, I wouldn't say, you know, that there was a systematic arrangement about this. Um, if I was there and if I was invited to say something or if I knew something, I would say it. About the the immediate or recent past of a potential minister? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And do you assume uh, that Simon Case did do this? And if he didn't, is the criticism justified that seems to be whirling around from your experience as a cabinet secretary? Well, I just don't know. Um, it depends really how the three prime ministers that he served used him and what the relationship was. I don't even know whether he sat in on um, the decisions. I think one of the things perhaps that has changed a bit is that these appointments, and maybe it's just the circumstances of the last year, um, seem to have had to be made in great haste. And so I don't know really, you know, how much discussion and reflection there could be. Um, it's always better if, obviously, if you can take a bit longer and take ev all the information that's available into account. But I think we've also... You mean got... the reshuffles have been made in great haste? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I think we've also got to remember that the freedom of the Prime Minister it, it can be quite, is quite constrained. There are debts and loyalties of which you have to take account. Now, I'm not saying that they should um, rule out anything else, but these are powerful constraints on the Prime Minister. Um, and um, I remember, you know, Margaret Thatcher, there were difficult people. I was not, I'm not going to use a vulgar phrase, but she would have them in the tent rather than out of the tent because she thought they could do less, cause less trouble in the tent. There were other people whom the Prime Minister may not have had complete confidence in, but to whom they owed things. And therefore, there was pressure on them to, um, uh, to include, uh, to appoint, or who represented wings of the party whom it was uh, necessary to have represented. Can the Cabinet Secretary be uh, uh, too easy to blame? I, I don't know whether you... I can't remember it happening to you being... Were you briefed against? I can't remember when something well, went wrong. Just <laughs> no, remind me. Well, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, where, where I got into the press was uh, investigating misbehaviour. Oh, of course. Uh, um, of course yeah. Particularly with Cash for Questions and yeah. uh, Jonathan Aitken and so on. This was in the John Major era. And, and did the they Major. brief against you? Did ministerial? No. Uh, no, so there was no briefing against you. Not, you. not that I was aware of. Do you, do you sense that... There is at the moment with with Simon Case that he he is being blamed when in fact it's this fascinating, isn't it? The, the the division between elected politicians and their accountability, and these powerful you had power and influence behind the scenes as cabinet secretary. Um, how you measure that responsibility? Um, do you get the impression that there is too much easy blame at the moment on the behind-the-scenes cabinet secretary who cannot go out on the media and defend himself uh, compared with the elected politicians? Well, I think that the media have penetrated the setup uh, much more than in my day. Uh, it's the most extraordinary thing. I knew uh, political journalists... But I was never telephoned 
once in the um, 10 years I was cabinet secretary. Really? Um, and I was never asked, you know, and that was because they respected the fact that I couldn't and that my yeah. position was difficult and uh, we had personal friendships. But uh, I'm not sure that that's, you know, that occurs still today. I think there is much more media penetration of the setup. I don't know who does this briefing. I always hope and believe that it comes more from the political side than from the civil service side. It may come from SPADs. Um, and, but anyway, I, I think there's much more of it, and I think it may, must make uh, my successor's life more difficult. Do, do you also sense... Now, this happened, I remember vividly, uh, post-97 with New Labour, there was quite a lot of, uh, and it was sincere, I'm sure you would think unjust, criticism of the civil service machine, uh, that it wasn't modern enough. And I heard ministers saying, and you heard it in number 10, they don't even have the right computers. You know, there was a lot of that going on. But do you sense that it's got more intense now? We've had Jacob Rees-Mogg saying they're all working from home. Uh, we've heard, actually, other forget about Simon Case, remember, just generally, there have been criticisms of the civil service. Uh, permanent secretaries have gone. Um, what's your reading of that relationship now compared with when you were cabinet secretary? Well, just to go back to Tony Blair for a moment, um, I felt some of that criticism of the civil service was justified. Right. The civil service press machine, media machine, was very cumbersome and slow compared with uh, the, what the, la- the one the Labour had uh, established. And it really did need to be improved. I mean, I think the, I think the, the um, machine, the, the methods that Labour brought into government sometimes acted a bit too quickly and made mistakes, but they had a very much better and more efficient response mechanism than the civil service at that time uh, had. I think that the relationship between the politicians and the civil service has deteriorated a great deal since my day. Um, It has become very much more us, the politicians, and them, the civil servants. I like to feel, and I think it was the case, that um, although the civil service were a separate state of the realm, we were had the confidence of ministers that we would work professionally for them, whichever party was in power. And personal relationships were really both close and good. Now, what I like to say is I think that um, politics has become more political and that now the politicians are inclined, and it's part of the pressure of events, to spend more time on politics and less time on government. And of course, the civil servant's job is government, whereas the um, politicians and the spads uh, are more concerned with uh, politics. And I do feel that sort of politics has slightly taken over. The civil service has been pushed into the background and the relationship isn't as close and trusting uh, as it was in my day. I want to ask you about some of the dramas when you were uh, in uh, working with these five prime ministers, because there were many. 
but nothing I suspect compared with last year. Um, and I just wondered, what what would you have felt like being cabinet secretary in the Boris Johnson era with the Partygate stuff whirling around? Where where would where would your loyalties have been in that drama? Well, I think I would have felt that I wanted to do my best for the government. But I think for those who were the cabinet secretaries, Mark Sedwell and then uh, Simon Case, it was extremely difficult. Um, I think notoriously, Boris Johnson was not an easy man to (laughs) organise. And so that job of trying to make sure that issues were discussed in an orderly way with ministers having all the facts and being able to decide was very much more difficult to um, organise. Uh, and I don't didn't see it from the inside, but uh, I think we all have uh, that impression. Um, and then um, Boris Johnson uh, went and... Um, There was then the uh, period of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak running for uh, uh, to be leader of the Conservative Party. Um, I think that during that time, um, the job of the Cabinet Secretary was sort of to prepare whichever of them won for um, for office. Uh, I believe that Simon Case did his best to uh, do that. I think... When Liz Truss came in, um, she was very headstrong, um, partly because she felt you know the, an awful lot had to be done in two years, and we know the results of that. And then, um, what? What? I mean, if you've been cabinet secretary of that extraordinary few weeks, what, what is the role when the economy seems to be hurtling towards? cliff's edge when, say, the top civil servant at the Treasury is sacked? I mean, do you you try and represent that as head of the civil service? Say, you know, I I disagree with this. Would you have said that? Um, And and, and do you intervene on economic policy when the economy seems to be almost ridiculously fragile? Well, (laughs) of course, the person who could intervene and would and should have carried most weight was Tom Scholar. Yeah, who they got rid of. (laughs) The Secretary of the Treasury, whom whom they got rid of quite wrongly, because, um, you know, that's not the way in which the civil service ought to be treated and ought to work. Would you have said that if you had been Cabinet Secretary? If I'd had the chance, uh, I doubt whether um, Simon Case did have the chance, because... um, it was done pretty well on the on the first day, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know, but I yeah. doubt very much whether he had yeah. the chance. Yeah. So, I mean, the the truth is that the um, trust administration acted precipitately, and I don't think that probably the civil servants got much opportunity to give uh, the advice that they would have liked to have given. Is it your sense, without uh, in in any way, sort of being? Uh, conferring approval or disapproval, that someone like Keir Starmer, who has been uh, a director of public prosecution, has experienced running an institution, will be, forget about the politics, but be better prepared for the administrative 
pressures of power than a lot of leaders of the opposition who many of whom recently have had no experience of government at all uh, you know we mentioned you mentioned tony blair and david cameron and so on well uh i don't i don't know i mean i i don't know keir starmer personally i i haven't met him um but i get the impression yes he is due he is used to administration and um that uh, he will be amenable to trying to um, run things in an orderly way, as actually I believe that uh, Rishi Sunak is. Looking back at the five prime ministers that you worked with, was it the late 70s that you remember vividly or the... um some of the we've talked about the minor strikes on in the Thatcher era. What, what kind of stands out as kind of vivid dramas which you felt directly connected with? Well, there were a lot of them. Um, I lived through the miners' strike under Ted Heath, um, 73-74, and that was a great tra- trauma, really, because um, Heath. You know, had a, he was a one-nation conservative. He wanted business and the unions to be able to work together. And he made a big effort at that. And, it, and I believed in it. Um, I had no difficulty in supporting him during that time. Uh, and it was a great uh, trauma, really, when he um, was defeated and uh, went out. So there was that was my first uh, big uh, drama, I think. And then uh, during the uh, Thatcher years, um, the miners' strike again, when things were very much on the edge, very dodgy. I mean, it wondered whether the government could uh, survive it. Um, and so that was that was a drama. And then with. Um, John Major, a moment that stands out, of course, is Black Wednesday and the... Const- what, did, what did you say to him on that day? What, what advice did you give? Well, I know he's getting I, advice from you know, all, all sorts, but what a day. Yeah, September well, I remember, I remember it vividly because um, it happened to be at a time when um, Number 10 was being done up and John Major wasn't living there. So he was in Admiralty House, oh, yeah. and the meetings took place in Admiralty House, and the, there were no <laughs> means of communication with Admiralty House. And uh, I remember, you know, at lunchtime, um, they put up interest rates by 2%, but it wasn't working, and so there was going to be a crisis in the afternoon, and I spent the afternoon in Admiralty House. And I remember, I think it was Michael Heseltine saying, well, What's going on in the markets? Um, everybody outside seems to know, but we don't. <laughs> and anyway, um, in the end, we, we got information from them, but the ministers were really cut off from what was going on. Um, and uh, then they had to make the decision that uh, we would have to uh, leave the monetary mechanism. Um, and then uh, that was announced that evening. Um, Do you ever feel that you being outside party politics, can say to a prime minister, like at the end of that day, are you all right, prime minister? You know, how, how are you kind of thing? Because you are separate from all the internal tensions which were raging in the Conservative Party by then. 
Oh, um, if you mean, are you all right uh, politically? No. No, but uh, personally. Yes. Um, when they're under these unbelievable pressures. That's right. Uh, I think I think you would say, "Can I get you a drink?" <laughs> At the end of a day, like that, like yeah. that. Um, and you know, other colleagues having gone, and then the officials tend to get left behind. Um, uh, just then, talking and um, trying to comfort the and reassure the prime minister as best we can. It's that sort of personal relationship. I was, uh, while uh, preparing for the interview, had a look again at your report on uh, Iraq and the use of intelligence, a huge moment in uh, British politics when your report was published. Um, and it was it was pretty critical of quite a lot of what went on. Uh, was that weird for you, having worked with Tony Blair, albeit briefly as his cabinet secretary? There were you making a sort of, pivotal assessment of him partly um that must have been strange well for you yes i saw the subject of the report as being why had the intelligence been so wrong yeah so it was sort of partly a a technical uh matter but at the end um there was the bit about you know um, the cabinet really uh, hadn't been operating properly and hadn't uh, hadn't discussed this, and also, of course, whether um, the government and Blair in particular had deliberately misled the the public. And you know, again, I remember vividly the press conference, and the the question I feared was: should the prime minister resign? And um, I really didn't want to answer that question. Um, and uh, it never came up. I know, I know. Just remind us what you would have said if the question had come up. Well, I would have said that that is um, a political matter and that is for his cabinet colleagues and the party in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't have said, no, he shouldn't. (laughs) No. No, no. Uh, Is that because you saw that there was a case that he might, that he should? Well, yes. I mean, I think the... I never believed that um, Tony, and don't believe that Tony Blair took, um, told a little deliberate untruth. Uh, the, the smoking gun, if there was one, was that um, he had said that the intelligences, I'm trying to remember the three words, extensive, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Joint Intelligence Committee reports that he'd had um, had said in terms the intelligence is sporadic and patchy. Yeah, and uh, so um, if 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 there was a if there, you know if there was a misleading of Parliament, that was it. That was it. Looking back on your extraordinary career, I mean, it always seems to me that the media all the time says, "Well, things have never been as dramatic in politics as they are now." Um, and I'm a bit wary of that because, you know, I can remember many of the dramas that you have, you were directly involved with. But do you think now being a cabinet secretary, Simon Case, is harder than when you did it, partly because of the media? I mean, you were saying before, just tell us briefly, the media span of your uh, time in uh, public life. Uh, you were mentioning to me, you remember Macmillan 
and the media treatment then compared with now. If you just tell us that to contextualise, and then for you to reflect on whether it's harder now than when you were when you were in uh, when you were cabinet secretary. Well, when I reflect on how things changed over the course of my career, I joined the civil service in 1961. Um, when Macmillan was Prime Minister as a member of the Treasury. And at that time, the the media played really very little, um, they, they had, they've made very little impact. Um, there was the lobby uh, in number 10. Their, their, their briefings were um, confidential. The uh, press, the head of press in number 10 wasn't a very big figure. And certainly, I mean, the head of uh, press in the Treasury was quite a junior official called Rab Rafel. And um, so the dealings with the the media played a much smaller part in uh, government than they did then. And it increased exponentially, really, um, during my time. Uh, and I, I that's not the fault of the media. Uh, it's not the fault of the politicians. It's just the way the world has changed. And uh, that has to be coped with. Both sides have to cope with it. And uh, it does make 24-7 media and all the outlets um, make life very much more difficult. You know, there's people saying things the whole time that the media pick up and report and the government has got to respond to it. So that what is called the comms operation, the communications has become, I mean, very much bigger part of uh, government. The number of staff employed on it has grown hugely. And that is just a way in which the world has changed. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. One thing, finally, that uh, always fascinates me about uh, people like you who, who opt for the civil service route but end up working with prime ministers who spend some of their time every day working out how to win the next election, amongst other things. Now, you don't have to think about that at all. But do you, and have you always had strong private views, you know, about politics that you just have to suppress when you walk into number 10? Presumably, privately, you approve of the views of some of the prime ministers more than others. And and that must be, again, a strange inner tension for senior figures like you behind the scenes. No, it it wasn't difficult for me because actually, no, I didn't never had have uh, very strong ideological political um, views. I certainly thought some of the prime ministers that I worked for were right about some aspects and wrong about other aspects. 
But um, I, I never had any difficulty. I, I never had a decision that affected my conscience and said I can't be uh, associated with this. But of course, I think the other thing to remember that in, um, in, in British politics, it hasn't been hugely ideologically divided. The problems are the same, uh, and it's less perhaps ideologically divided now even than it was during my career. I always regarded John Major as slightly to the left of Tony Blair, um, just as, a, as an illustration, um, in certain respects, in social policy and so on. And um, so it, it's never, it never presented a, a very great difficulty for me. Did you have a favourite Prime Minister? Uh, well, what I say is that Despite the impression, you know, that people often uh, get from the way prime ministers are dealing in the, dealt with in the media, nobody can becomes prime minister of this country without having very considerable talents. Their talents are different, and we as the civil servants tried to support them in the best way we could, and that was what made the job so interesting. So there we go, Lord Butler reflecting not, of course, just on his time as Cabinet Secretary, but uh, afterwards when he, um, as I said to him, was in the odd position of reporting on Tony Blair, who he had been Cabinet Secretary for or with the famous Butler report into the the war in Iraq or the use of intelligence. There were lots of reports and his was on the uh, use of intelligence. Um, And... uh, yeah, well, what a range, what a career. He's still as fit as anything. He was off, um, after I spoke to him, uh, I think he was planning to play golf. I think he cycles to Westminster, the House of Lords. Navigating the top of British politics gives a kind of energy and robust fitness for decades to come. So interesting as well, this the, the, the civil servant not having that sort of party affiliation in any way. Uh, moving from one character to another. Lord Butler detects a sort of consensus um, in British politics. I I personally don't, but isn't it interesting that um, when you are in that kind of mindset where your role is to, I don't know, smooth the workings of government, it is a different perspective from uh, those of us who... um, every hour kind of have views about <laughs> what should happen, what is happening, and so on. It, it is a different mindset. It's similar to the mindset if you go into the BBC and talk to people that you... you, you but contrary to mythology, it's really quite hard to know in a lot of cases where their politics are or whether they actually have a kind of politics of uh, views. Um, but what a responsible role what uh, a a stage on which to view the figures who ruled the UK for many years, and also making clear the limits of the role. I thought it was very interesting when uh, Lord Butler said the cabinet reshuffles happen so quickly sometimes, and the cabinet secretary might not be in the room when some of the ministerial appointments are made. And I know he is an admirer of uh, Simon Case, and so, uh, you know, th- there are kind of nuances when politicians blame some of those behind the scenes. Anyway, 
It's been one hell of a week, hasn't it? And thank you so much for listening. We better get together again very soon to make sense of it all. And we will do that next week. In the meantime, have a good time. Oh, yeah. If you could leave a review, a five-star review, only only those, the rest are pointless. You know, just a waste of time. That would be great. And also, uh, the Rock and Roll Politics never-ending tour is kicking off very soon. And the details of where and when and how you can get the tickets will be on the blurb for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. And thank you to Lord Butler too. Bye. Bye.